Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman-Torpe and Peter Torpe. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. Well, this week we have something a little special for you as we complete our ninth year of hosting and producing this show. It sure has been a lot of fun. And so what we're going to do is play you some highlights of some of our favorite times from our first episode through some of our later episodes. Normally, we start with the tip of the week before we introduce our guests, but this week we're reversing that. We're going to start with the very beginning of the very first episode of what was then called Viewpoints from January 2011. Two years later, we discovered there was a trademark conflict, and we changed the name of the show to Eyes on Success, which it's been ever since. As you'll hear, though, we kept the same theme song, which Pete wrote and performed. Hello, and welcome to Viewpoints, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman-Torpe and Peter Torpe. Hi, I'm Nancy Goodman-Torpe. And I'm Pete Torpe. We'd like to welcome you to the first session of Viewpoints, a radio program featuring ideas and information for the visually impaired to help you live more independently. So I'm actually visually impaired myself, and we'd like to share some of the tips we've learned and picked up through the years uh, about living with uh, a disability like that. Uh, my state of my vision now is I see basically lights and shadows. I was born with congenital glaucoma and have had many complications since. I'm sighted, and with eyeglasses, I have normal corrective vision. But I've been married to Pete for 27 years, so I've got that much experience living with a, a visually impaired person. Boy, we sure did sound different back in those days. A little bit younger, eh? Well, and we recorded in a different studio. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's tip of the week. Well, this was our very first tip from that same show, but it remains one of our favorites out of over 450 weekly tips to date. We'll start this show and every show with a tip of the week. This week's topic is wearing eyeglasses even if you can't see. As he said, Pete's been blind to varying degrees his entire life. Corrective lenses could never have been of any help to him since his biggest visual problem was damage to his optic nerve from glaucoma. However, when he was 30, he started wearing eyeglasses. So, Pete, can you tell the story of how and why you started wearing glasses? Well, as you indicated, I couldn't see that well uh, when I was younger either, but I didn't wear my glasses, and I was dancing one evening and wound up bumping into somebody and scratching my cornea, and that was quite a painful uh, process. So after that, I decided that even though glasses wouldn't help me see any better, it was a good idea to have some protection to protect the limited vision that I did have. And they've come in quite useful, as you know, over the years. <laughs> we are forever going to the glasses store to get them straightened out again after some wall or whatever did damage to the glasses, but at least they don't usually damage Pete. Right. Our last incident was actually just a couple of days ago when I was shoveling out a, um, a little bush in the backyard, and I bent over to take one more 
good shovel full, and the, one of the branch of the bushes smacked me right in the glasses and knocked the glasses. They went flying, but uh, fortunately, I only got a little scratch on my nose. So, you know, there was a very good circumstance where it uh, came in useful. The other thing I've found useful is to get a frame that's good and sturdy. Sometimes, you know, you want to get some designer-looking frame. It looks very nice, uh, and, uh, but I've found that some of those are a little bit too flimsy, and when I walk into a wall or get hit with something, they'll, they'll get bent all out of shape, and they often won't protect as, as they're supposed to. So that's one of the things I look for when I get uh, glasses these days. But we're always in the glasses store uh, getting these things repaired when I walk into things. And one other benefit to the glasses is, frankly, they help cosmetically because the glare makes it a little harder to see Pete's eyes. And he's had a dozen operations at least, and and it actually looks better with a little bit of the glare. And even though he can't see, Pete always likes to look good. Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is some of our favorite moments from prior episodes of Eyes on Success, or viewpoints as the case may be, for the really old ones. The first clip is from show number 1135, in which we talked about blind-friendly toys and games. At the time, we were still recording in the studios at our local national public radio affiliate. And boy, did we get some odd looks when we brought in a toy with sound effects into the NPR studios. But fortunately, the studio in which we were recording is soundproofed. Our kids are in their 20s, which means that most of our youth-oriented toys are from 15, 20 years ago. But we've got some classics, and we actually managed to find our bop it. If you don't know what bop it is, it's this plastic object which has um, specifically shaped gizmos on various appendages thereof. Each one has a characteristic noise that goes with it, and the challenge is to do whatever it tells you to do. So if it says twist it, you grab the thing that feels like a spiral cone and you give it a twist. And if you don't manage to do that in the allotted amount of time, it lets you know that you've blown it. So here's our bop it. You can hear it keeps going faster and faster, and then every once in a while it says pass it because it's a multi-person game if you want it to be, and when you're through doing the things that it tells you to do, you pass it on to the next person. This was a great game with the kids because it's kid-friendly at almost any age, and even adults can enjoy it, and it's just kind of a physical, active thing. It's great. You can play it by yourself. You can play it with a whole group of people. It's a fun party game. The more recent boppets actually have four or five or six gizmos on them that you do different things to, but they're all very easy to find with or without vision. 
So over the years, we've also talked with a number of people involved in extreme sports. And one of our early ones was talking to Joshua Loya, who is involved in martial arts, in particular using weapons. Guardian Jiu-Jitsu is probably the, the easiest of the programs that we teach at our school for a blind person. Because uh, it's very tactile, mostly grappling, wrist locks, chokes. Uh, throws, that sort of thing. There is also Guardian Karate, which is kicking, punching, uh, elbow strikes, blocks, more of a direct, rather than a redirect, it's more of a block the punch sort of a thing. And then there is Kobo Jitsu, which is the weapons program. And in particular with our weapons program, we focus on uh, swords and also we work with bow staves and Eskrima, uh, which are a very short stick uh, found in the Philippines, and some knife fighting as well. And we do touch on some other weapons in that program, but those are the ones we primarily focus on. When somebody moves into Guardian Kempo, there are other weapons, but you know, there's a lot to handle just with those. I think I could pass on the swords and knife fighting skills. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You want to do it with me? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think so. We've tried Morris dancing. They use some sticks. Yeah, and occasionally my partner at Morris dancing got hit over the head with a stick. <laughs> so you might think that martial arts are a pretty unlikely activity for a blind person. Um, note our giggling about all of these weapons. But Joshua doesn't seem to think it's a problem. So the obvious question is, this sounds like one needs to see a fist coming towards them or a knife coming towards them. How does one deal with this being blind? We primarily train for self-defense. We don't train much for competition, although there are certainly things that we train in and develop that would be applicable to competition. In a self-defense situation, you often won't know you're in a self-defense situation until after you've been attacked. And so I may not see the first punch. That said, I can move with it, and I can learn to move with that punch so to minimize the damage and then instantly react so that, say, maybe they get one shot in, and then I stay in close. And once you have developed those skills, you can move in and respond rather quickly, especially because they're not expecting a blind person to, to fight back. I mean, that's the one thing is most criminals are looking for an easy target. They're not looking for a fight. They're not looking for a contest. They're looking on somebody they can rob or steal from, or rape, or, or something of, of that sort of nature. Well, that would be certainly quite a surprise uh, for some criminal coming up upon some blind person, going down the street with a cane and attacking them, and then realizing all of a sudden that they were quite a match. So I guess this can be a useful skill to learn just in terms of self-defense, protecting yourself. Right, and he mentioned that he might not be able to detect the person coming up to him for the first contact, but once they get there, he's gotten pretty good at knowing where the other person is. Oftentimes, and, and this is something people want to learn to develop, their other senses, uh, you can begin to hear the, the movement of somebody's uniform or clothes. You can hear their feet on the mat. You can also start to get a sense of where somebody is based on what that first initial point of contact. And, you know, you can start to get a general sense of what's likely to be effective. Joshua was hardly the only athlete we've spoken with. In fact, we've done many episodes in which we spoke with marathoners, including various runners who have used electronic devices, 
remote people, celebrities, or even dogs as guides. But Dave Healy takes the concept of an ultramarathon to an extreme. I don't even remember how we first heard about you, but what first caught our attention was this multi-marathon, I don't even know what you call this trip, where you did seven marathons on seven continents in seven consecutive days. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, I could talk all year about it, to be totally honest with you. It was just an unbelievable adventure. In 2003, I was listening to a national radio station, Serrano Fines. He just detailed how he'd become the first person in the world to run seven marathons, seven days, seven continents. And I thought, hang on a minute, that sounds like a bit of an adventure. So I no sooner, uh, with the help of Deb, we put a letter together. Six weeks later, I was talking to Serrano Fines, and he said, able-bodied, you won't get no coverage. Blind, disabled, you will. He said, I'll help where I can. Anyway, five years went on, and uh, in 2008, we had the logistics. I mean, there's only seven continents, but it was the cities that we was going to and where the planes was going to drop us. We had a, a sponsor, along with the charity, had then come on board. And with all the other little things that went on, through a talk that I did at um, a university, I came across a young lady who worked for a, a travel agent, and she came on board, and she was absolutely wonderful. And we plotted the course. It all kicked off on the 7th of April, 2008, a minute past midnight. We kicked off with GMT. I uh, did the Falkland Islands. I completed that marathon in four hours and 14 minutes. Weather conditions there were sort of around minus two. On the morning of the 7th, we had to do two marathons. You did two marathons in one day? Yeah. We flew off the Falkland Islands at 20 past 1 a.m. local. We landed after six hours of flying and two hours of immigration, etc. At 9.30 a.m., the very, very safe same morning, we did uh, the Rio leg, the South America leg. And then on that evening, the 7th, we then caught a plane and we flew to L.A. So on the 8th, we did a marathon around the world-famous Rose Bowl. And that was fantastic. Support there was brilliant. We lost a Wednesday because of the dateline. And Thursday, we ended up in Sydney, Australasia. And then from there, we flew on the to the Friday to Dubai and Asia. On the Saturday, we were in Tunisia, Africa. And then we flew on to London on the 13th of April to the finish line in five hours and 20 minutes. And it was just one fantastic, adventurous week. And along the way, he raised several hundred thousand pounds for guide dogs in the UK. I'm tired just listening to that description. That interview was actually kind of funny. Nancy and I were really taken with Dave's British accent. But during the interview, his daughter walked in and wanted to hear our American accents. The next clip we'd like to play is from another athlete, Ty Thompson, who was an ex-board member of the U.S. Blind Golf Association. And in this interview, Nancy and I learned the importance of asking one question at the end of the interview. Is there anything we missed? Yes. Would you like to hear about my hole-in-one? Oh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I had my first hole-in-one three years ago. And it was a really exciting moment. It has a lot of uh, jocularity to it as well. My coach lined me up on the hole, and 
I went ahead and stroked it, and he's describing, oh, great, right along the line I wanted you to be on. It's, a, it's landed on the green, and then there's dead silence. And two of the other guys on the tee box go, I saw it. It went in. The other guy, yeah, it did. It went in. And I said, are you sure it's not behind it? It could easily be behind the hole or dropped on a you know lower level or something. He said, no, we saw it go in. So we get in the carts, and we're going up there after everybody hit, of course. And then my coach says, uh, well, I don't see your ball on the green. I literally jump out of a moving cart. <laughs> and I go down there. He tells me, left, left. And so I find the pin, and I stick my hand in. Sure enough, there's a ball in the hole. Holy mackerel. I was so excited. Then my, my coach comes up with the other two guys and says, hey, that's uh, pretty cool. Too bad it doesn't count. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't count? He says, well, heck, you didn't see it go in. I said that does it no drinks at the 19th hole for any of you guys (laughs) that's pretty cool so I assume they don't let you drive the golf cart well my insurance agent highly frowns on that correct so there's one thing you can't do on the golf course that is true let me tell you another interesting thing about that hole in one that occurred on a Monday and in the span of six days there were four hole-in-ones from blind golf members. And there hadn't been a hole-in-one for years. The next clip is another one in which we got a surprise when we asked if there was anything else we had missed. Although blinded in an automobile accident, Larry Woody owns and manages an auto repair shop. But that's not what this clip is about. Apparently, he still enjoys using automobiles as well. Oh, and you haven't heard it all. I used to race cars before my blindness, and I've done it since my blindness. As the driver or as a passenger? As the driver. Blind? Uh-huh. If you go on to YouTube and type in White King Racing or Trash Car Racing, you should come up with a little white Honda Prelude number 177. That's me driving it. How did you get into racing blind? One of the guys I used to race with and against, he came up to me with well, the year of my wreck. But he says, hey, I want to change my car number. I said, okay. He said, but I want to, I'm going to use your number. I want to change it to 77. Fine with me. I don't plan on using the number again. I said, but there is a catch. He says, what's that? I says, I get to drive your car. And he got real quiet. He says, I'm okay with that. I turned to my wife and said, what do you think? She said, I don't care. She says, I know you're safe in that car. And it started off to be a joke. Well, a year later, I was in his car taking some laps around the same track that I used to race on. The only one in the car, but we did it by way of radio. I had an earbud in my ear under my helmet, and our head of safety crew was standing up in the flagman's tower. He would be talking to me, okay, Larry, you're going down the front straight now. You're coming up to the apex of turn one, and he would just keep talking to me. You're going through turn one now. You might want to move a little bit up the track. Okay, looking good. Okay, you're coming into turn two. Coming out of turn uh, two, you're on the back stretch, and just keep talking to me like that all the way around the track. And I did probably 10, 15 laps at, you know, first gear just at a nice, easy pace. Got it up to second and third gear and set it up a little bit. And we did all this on a Friday night, just my family and a few of the track owners and a few of the track officials there. Well, one of the track owners, he says, would you do this again tomorrow night in front of the fans? And I said, yeah. 
I did it tonight, the first night for me, because I wanted to get back in the car and just feel, feeling of being in that car. I said, but I'll do it tomorrow night for one reason. To show any of them people sitting up in there in the stands that says, I've got this blankety-blank disability. If it wasn't for this disability I've got, I would be doing something like this. And that was my point, that if this crazy blind guy can go out and take that car around the track blind, then there's not many disabilities that's going to stop somebody else from doing what they want. So I've done that. I've done the trash car racing and three different races or three different facilities of it. Anything else? We still enjoy going to the Oregon coast and riding on uh, the ATVs in the sand dunes. And I still get out and drive doing that with people telling me, right, left, go and stop. And next we have Amy Bower's story, an oceanographer who was on a research vessel just sailing around, and you wouldn't think that's too dangerous of an occupation, but it was. We were on a research cruise off the coast of East Africa. Uh, This was in 2001. We were studying the water that comes out of the Red Sea because it has a special signature. It's extra salty, basically, and it spreads around in the whole Indian Ocean and there wasn't much known about how it mixes and spreads. So we were there doing this cruise. And the way a research cruise works is if you're going to work within 200 miles of a country that has an established EEZ, which stands for Exclusive Economic Zone, you have to get permission from their government to do that. Okay. So we were going to be working within 200 miles of Somalia, Yemen, and Djibouti. So we asked for permission from Yemen and got it, and from Djibouti and got it. Somalia at the time, maybe still so, the U.S. doesn't have any diplomatic relations with Somalia. So there was no official government to even ask for this permission. So you could see this as a warning flag, like stay away, or as an opportunity, because the chances were that if they had a government and they weren't that friendly to the U.S. and we asked, we would have been denied. And then we would have been able to work within 200 miles of their coast. So we worked within 200 miles of their coast anyway, without asking. We went there twice, in fact, Uh, and the first time was fine. We didn't have any incidents. I mean, it was a known piracy area, but not like it is today. So we went on a second trip, and that's when we were attacked by pirates, basically. We were about 20 miles offshore of Somalia, but fishing boat came by, and then some guys jumped in a small boat and came over to us and threatening and showing weapons, and the captain wisely decided we better get out of here. So we pulled up our instrument and started taking off, but they followed us, and they fired weapons at us and grenades and things like that. But the captain was smart, didn't stop, you know, just keep on going. And eventually they just broke off and and went back to their fishing boat. And the whole thing was about 45 minutes, maybe something like that. So that was pretty scary. That must have been terrifying. Yeah. I was the chief scientist of the cruise and I felt particularly responsible, even though the safety of the vessel is not my official responsibility. You know, the idea to come to this area was partly mine. And I thought, oh, God. Why did we come here? This was such a bad idea. (laughs) You know, and if anyone had gotten hurt, which fortunately no one was hurt, and the ship wasn't damaged at all. uh, But if anyone had, I I don't know, that would have been devastating. Did you go back for a third trip? (laughs) No. Then piracy really took off in the last 10 years or so, you know, and now they definitely don't go anywhere around Somalia. Good policy. 
Yeah, good idea. Yeah, and we've got probably the last best data set ever collected there. <laughs> wow, well, that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> at least for ocean currents and things like that, yeah. Well, we hope you enjoyed our selections over the years. As you can imagine, these were all very memorable interviews for one reason or another. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about obtaining prior and future episodes of Eyes on Success and how to contact us. So I'm going to direct people to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. We laid it out nice and simple and very accessibly. And at the top of the page, the first link you'll see is to our archives of all the previous year's shows. Yes, over 450 episodes are there, and you can each search through them individually or just peruse the files and download any of those shows. The next thing on our website, to make it a little bit easier for people to find shows of interest, is our search field. And it's easy to use that. Just put in a keyword or a show number or some phrase, and you'll find a summary of shows matching that search criterion, along with links to the audio and the show notes for those episodes. You'll also find information on our webpage about how to subscribe to the podcast. That's very easy. You can find Eyes on Success in any of your favorite podcatching programs. And a new way of listening to Eyes on Success these days is to use your Amazon or Google smart home device by simply saying, play Eyes on Success podcast, and you'll be able to listen that way very easily. Our regular listeners will know that when we're asking our guests for contact information, we always ask if they have a social media presence. Well, of course, we do too. We are on Twitter as at underscore eyes on success and on facebook as eyes on success and every week we put an announcement of that week's episode complete with a link to the audio in both of those and also on our web page you'll find instructions for signing up if you want to receive weekly announcements of upcoming episodes along with links to those shows in addition, we have another group that is a discussion group for people who would like to share their thoughts with other listeners and talk a little bit about what they've heard on the show. Now, we also always encourage people to contact us if you have any comments or questions about a previous show or if you have a suggestion for a future show. And you can reach us by email at hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. And finally, I want to mention the show notes that are associated with every episode as well as with this episode. If you go to www.eyesonsuccess.net and look for the show notes for any episode, you'll find all of the contact information that we talked about in the show if you didn't catch that in the audio. So this is an easy place where you can find that information. And for this episode, we'll have links to the full episodes from which we took the clips you heard earlier. 
That's it for show number 1952. Next week on Eyes on Success, we will be starting the year with a tribute to Jim Thatcher, who died December 7th, 2019, by airing an encore of the episode we did with him over five years ago. Jim Thatcher was a pioneer in the development of the first screen readers and years later of the first standards for web accessibility. We spoke with him about the early history of both and about his more recent work as an accessibility consultant. Happy New Year, everyone. See you next year. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show, or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.